Well, good morning, Mount Hermon. Well, hey, before I forget, um, on behalf of Jennifer and myself, this will be probably the last time that I'm speaking in this regard today, right? And so I want to say thank you so much uh, for your questions, your comments. Um, it's just been a fabulous week to spend with you. I've enjoyed the fellowship around the table we have. And so uh, thank you for your incredible hospitality for friends that I know. It's good to see your faces for new friends that I now have, that we now have. It has been a great privilege. So I want to say that, certainly. And um, it's good to see you all. Well, did I mention that I collect a few things? I don't know if I've mentioned that this week, but I went back to the vault again this morning. And speaking of kids, in honor of little children, one of the things that I collect is I collect exam answers from little kids. So uh, what I want to share with you, these are real exams, okay, and the answers that little kids gave and provided on their tests. So this is what I mean. Some of you will appreciate this, especially with your background. So let me show you. So here is a real, you know, this was a math test, and uh, her name was Hope, and you're supposed to name these particular quadrilaterals. Does that make sense? And so they're supposed to name them. So there's a square, right, and a rectangle and things like this. And here's what little Hope said. Oh, Bob and Kate and Redison and, I mean, after all, it said name them, right? That kid gets an A, let me tell you. It's not bad. Uh, for those of you that are math people, you know who you are, you know. So there is a particular formula that says find X, right? And this kid says, here it is. Right there. Anybody can see it. Right there. I get it. You've seen some of these. They're popular. They're on the web here. You know, where was the American Declaration of Independence signed? That was in a pretty important place. And everybody says, at the bottom. We all know that. Everybody signs those things at the bottom. This was an important one, you know. What ended in 1896? Now, that was a significant date, right? And this kid said, 1895. I mean just the way it works. I always like these fill-in-the-blank ones, you know. The man blank the dog. Look at the picture there. And so, you know, you have two choices of words. The man blank the dog. And this kid just changed it all and said, the man pet the dog. You should not hit dogs. <laughs> Donna Damaris, isn't that correct? Amen. See, there you go. Okay, here we go. Um, this was always fascinating to me as a kid. I can remember these, you know, it puts you in a point in time, right? Have a significant... Imagine that you lived at the same time as Abraham Lincoln. What would you say to him or ask him? I would love to have that opportunity. <laughs> and this kid said, I'd tell him not to go to a play ever. <laughs> That's not bad, is it? That kid knew their history. There you go. Another math question. My sister's a math teacher. She loves these. So how many days are in a week? Seven. How many months are in a year? Twelve. Is this number even or odd? Even. And teachers always want to know, right? How do you know? <laughs> so how do you know? <laughs> this kid said, because I'm smart. <laughs> just got it out there, you know? Teacher didn't like that answer. So I'm just because I'm smart. Uh, this was a conversion question in math. 
how do you change centimeters to meters? There is a formula for that. So how do you change centimeters to meters? And this kid says, you just take out centa. <laughs> that is brilliant. It is. Okay, some more. Here we go. Um, another one of those. The difference between 180 and 158 is 22. Very good. Explain how you found your answer again in problem four. Are you ready for it? Math. <laughs> Fill in the solutions. This kid, I guarantee you, grew up in the same household as Mark Yarbrough. I promise you this. There's a problem and a solution. You fell on the playground and scratched your knee. What is the solution? Get up and deal with it. <laughs> My dad said that to me a thousand times growing up. Just get up and deal with it, you know. It's kind of a good solution for a lot of life, actually. Um, here we go, another one of those math formula ones. Mike saw 17 blue cars, 25 green cars. How many cars did he see? Write a number sentence for the missing number. Explain how the number sentence, so you then you have to explain it. So here it is. 17 plus 25 equals 42. That's very good. Well, I got the answer by talking in my brain, and I agreed the answer that my brain got. <laughs> so, okay, just a couple of more. Here we go. Um, now, this one, you may not be able to, to read, so let me help you out here. It's, this is a survey at the end of a course. Now, a disclaimer here. I promise you, this is not a survey for Mark Bailey, for Barry Jones, for Jonathan Murphy, for Greg Hatterberg, for myself. It didn't apply to Dr. Pond over here. This was not a Dallas Seminary survey, okay? So it's a survey, but it says, in the space below, please write any overall comments about the course or instructor not covered above. Does that make sense? It's a survey. <laughs> and this person said, if I had one hour to live, I'd spend it in this class because it feels like an eternity. <laughs> Gene, could you imagine getting that at the end of a survey? I mean, oh my. Okay, just a couple of more and then we'll behave. Okay, so this was one, this kid was given the instruction, draw a picture of what, it's a little odd, draw a picture of what you will look like in a hundred years. I understand what they're trying to ask. In a hundred years, I will be blank old, right? And so this kid was asked to draw a picture. And so this kid had it all figured out. Warren, rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the last one. Here we go. Last one, then we will behave, I promise. Okay. So here it was. Oh, Frankie. Frankie's going to take us home. I earn money at home by. So I kind of grew up in one of those homes. I actually had a little allowance and I had chores and it was a great teaching tool. And I think that's what the teacher was after, right? I earn money at home by. And Frankie said, I don't. I am a freeloader. <laughs> well, you got to appreciate his honesty. So there we go. Hey, let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, thank you 
again for your goodness in our lives. We thank you for laughter and for friendships, uh, for sweet moments that we've had this week with family and friends. What a privilege it has been for us to come into a place of beauty and, as we've said so many times, to hit the pause button, to reflect upon your grace in our lives. Lord, thank you for your word. It is so rich and real and applicable for our lives. These are not ancient documents. It's living and true and active and vibrant. And it gives us uh, instruction and teaching. It rebukes us. It corrects us. And so we thank you for the, the pure privilege of studying together as women and men of faith. And we thank you for that. Lord, in particular, I thank you for my brothers that have shared so diligently this week and we have reflected upon your faithfulness. Uh, you are so good. Lord, I thank you for this book of Jonah that we've had an opportunity in, in our Bible hour here in the mornings to, to walk through together. And uh, Lord, this book for us is confrontational. And um, even as we wrap it up today, Lord, we, we ask that we would see new things, that your spirit would be at work in our lives, that you would, would help us see, uh, see problems in our lives or areas that we need to address. Uh, we do not want to be like Jonah. We don't want to run from things that you have for us. Lord, you are always about our good. And so help us even today to be open, to be transparent, that your spirit would be at work in us to do what only he can do. So we commit it to you. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. Well, we started off back on Monday with this little picture. And you remember the image that we've run through this entire week as it relates to the book of Jonah. Because Kayla wanted to stand at attention and ask if she was growing spiritually, or asking if she was growing physically. And I asked the question, I think the Spirit was certainly at work in my life as she posed that very practical statement and practical question of why do big people stop growing spiritually? And I've asked you to join me in wrestling with that one. And I posed a question and I posed an answer at the very beginning of the week and said, why do people stop growing spirits? I think it's because we stop pursuing the heart of God and knowing who he is and what he longs for and allow the spirit to work within us. And so as we started this journey at the very beginning, I, I put in front of us some growth indicators that I really do believe the author surfaces these moments in the text as we're moving through the book. And this book of Jonah is a literary masterpiece that is meant to teach. And there is a background to this. As we stepped into the book, we realized that in the northern kingdom, in the reign of Jeroboam II, while the, the nation was maybe growing uh, physically and the borders were growing and, and there was great wealth, that their hearts were far from the living God. And God called his prophet by the name of Jonah to go into the heart of the Assyrian Empire. And God had other prophets that were ministering in the northern kingdom. But Jonah was asked to leave the northern kingdom and go into the heart of the Assyrian Empire. And he was asked to take that message that God had given him. But we know exactly what happens. He doesn't go, does he? 
He is a rebellious prophet. And, and we saw that there was great irony, even in his name, because his name means dove, right? Remember that? Yonah actually means dove. And, and his genealogical name is probably even a play on words because it means truth. And Jonah is anything but one who is a sacrifice himself or one whose life is emblematic of truth. Because we know how the story started. Remember, the word of the Lord came to him, and Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, but he does anything but that. He flees from the presence of God, and God said, go east, and Jonah went west. And uh, we asked ourselves the question, why? Why would he run from what God instructed him to do? Maybe it was because of who these Assyrians were. Maybe he was afraid of what was going to happen to him in some dark Assyrian alley. But as the story unfolds, we realize it is much more than that. The prophet of God has a heart problem, doesn't he? And we see that played out in a whole bunch of different ways. And as Jonah would flee from God, we have these growth indicators. And the first one I posed for us was a life that is growing spiritually is moving towards God's commands, not away from them, regardless of the difficulty. So he flees, remember, and God sends a storm, and he falls asleep on the boat, and the captain comes and wakes him up, and they play 20 questions with him eventually, and he says, oh, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the God who made the sea and the dry land. And even the Gentile sailors saw the inconsistency between what he said and how he lived. And that was a challenge for you and me. Growth indicator number two, a life that is growing spiritually, shows a consistency between words and works. And Jonah's life did not display that. And much to our surprise, the Gentile sailors, after Jonah says, here's how you can at least make it stop, throw me overboard. Remember, he's got a death wish. And they try to save his life. And we are stunned when we see the contrast between Jonah and the Gentiles. Jonah, who is called to take the word of Yahweh to the Gentiles that their lives might be saved, here the Gentiles actually try to save this rebellious prophet of Yahweh. Even that led us to another growth indicator. A life that is growing spiritually exhibits a testimony to the non-believing world, not the other way around. And so as we concluded chapter 1, in that transition verse, Jonah is thrown overboard, and you remember what it says, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. And we had to pause again for another growth indicator, because a life that's growing spiritually acknowledges and responds to the grace of God. God was continuing to chase his prophet down, and he saved him. And we would expect that Jonah would acknowledge and respond. And in one sense, as we began to see what he did inside of the belly of that large fish, remember what he did? He composed a psalm of thanksgiving. And we saw it, and it has a particular order to it. But we also realized that none of these words are Jonah's. He was pulling from the Hebrew hymn book, and he told his story well. And that led us to another growth indicator, a life that is growing spiritually, knows and applies the Word of God. But as we wrapped up chapter 2 and we pulled these two growth indicators together, do you remember what we struggled with? Because Jonah was doing the first part, but not the second part. In other words, he acknowledged the grace of God, but he didn't respond to it. Oh, he could know the word and quote the word, but he wasn't applying the word. 
And I led us to see that because I think what the author is wanting us to see is in Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. You remember that? It says that the Lord commanded the fish to vomit Jonah out. And they use a very specific word there that comes directly out of Leviticus chapter 18 that talks about an unfaithful heart. And we saw that, and I thought it was an editorial comment by God concerning Jonah's confession, his promises and vows, and the sincerity of his prayer. Why? Because James Watts was spot on. And the author almost duped us. We are so quick to say, yeah, Jonah finally gets it. Until we realize this. The prayer, the psalm, ignores the essential issue between the prophet and God. And that was Jonah's refusal of a prophetic commission. He never confessed his sin. That led us to another growth indicator, a life that's growing spiritually. Confesses sin, not pious words of religiosity. And so as we started yesterday, it it moves quickly in chapter 3, right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A seeming redo. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I gave you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. Very succinct statement. God said, do this, and Jonah went. But he went reluctantly. And we begin to see that play out even in chapter 3. And I challenge us to think about this. A life that is growing spiritually responds to God's command in total and complete obedience. Because I, I asked us to wrestle with something, and we all get it. Is there something called reluctant obedience? And we all know that to be true. It's one thing to do it. It's another thing to have the right heart. And Jonah goes into Nineveh, and oh, does he proclaim a message. He goes into this great city of Nineveh, remember that? And he says, 40 more days, hellfire and brimstone. God's going to fry you. Yarbrough paraphrased version. It's a little small message, but the way it's used, remember there's a particular word? Yesterday we learned hapak, and Jonah was very specific because he, friends, he's rejoicing in their demise. He says, Nineveh will be destroyed. Same way it was used in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. But the irony was that that word, remember elsewhere in Scripture, can mean not destruction, but it can mean change. And how ironic was it? That that's exactly what happened. Because when the word of the Lord, remember this, it even reached the king of Nineveh. Do you remember what he did? That one little word, kum. The command that Yahweh had given Jonah in chapter 1, verse 1. Where the pagan captain repeated the words. Jonah finally gets up, but he doesn't fully, completely obey. But when the word of the Lord reaches the king of Nineveh, you remember what he did? Oh, he got up. It was a picture of seriousness. He takes off his robes. He covers himself with sackcloth, and he sits in the dust. Why is that? Because he responded. The king of Nineveh responded in humility. And there was a growth challenge for you and me. A life that is growing spiritually responds to God in humility, not in arrogance and pride. And remember the discussion about satire? the attempt to effect reform by ridicule, when we look at the life of the king of Nineveh and how he responds, oh, how God longed for his own king and his own people to respond as did the Ninevites. 
Do you remember, by the way, in Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus, who clearly believed and identified Yonah as a physical character, historical character, he even talks about these Ninevites who repented. See, God longs for his people to come to him in humility and brokenheartedness. So, we wrapped it up, really, with Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. But we were greatly saddened, weren't we, when we connected chapter 4, verse 1. But Yonah was greatly displeased, and he became angry. And how ironic was that? The most unlikely candidate had received Yahweh's mercy, and now the most likely candidate now rejects it. You see, our final growth indicator yesterday was a life that is growing spiritually loves non-believers well and pursues them. And so the three things that we walked away with yesterday was, are we following God in total obedience, and is our response to God in humility, and are we loving the unlovely? Well, well, back to chapter 3, verse 10, I want to flow into chapter 4. That phrase again, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. But Yonah was greatly displeased and became angry, and I, I posed a very literal wooden translation that says this, it was an evil unto Jonah, a great evil. And it burned him. Okay, here's where this story takes a fascinating turn. Okay, work with me for a minute. I told you I grew up in a wonderful little country church. Beautiful. We had children's church. And I think I walked away with this understanding of the book of Jonah as a kid. And if truth be known, I bet you most of us in this room. Okay, here it is. Ready? Pardon my voices in this story. Jonah. Go to Nineveh. I'm not going to go. Jonah, go to Nineveh. I'm going to run away. Down to Joppa. Wee! Jonah, I'm not done with you. Here comes the storm. I'm going to jump overboard. I'm still mad. Big fish, save Jonah. I'm sorry, God. Please give me another chance. Fish, put him back on the dry land. (laughs) Okay, God. I'm going to go to Nineveh. God's going to get you if you don't repent. Oh, we're sorry. End of story. And we have no idea what to do with chapter (laughs) 4. Am I right? I think if we miss chapter 4, friends, we don't really understand the book. So here we are at the shocking moment. They have now, the Ninevites, have repented 
And they are now in a living relationship with the God of Israel. And the text says, it was an evil unto Jonah, and it burned him. Listen to this. Chapter 4, verse 2. It says this. I'm reading again from the NIV. Chapter 4, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. Let me explain how aggressive this language is in the Hebrew text. Literally, friends, it is positioning Jonah's stance before the Lord. He says, the NIV phrases it this way, is this not what I said? Okay, the phrase, friends, is what is referenced, okay? This is Hebrew language, and it is positioned in disrespect. The only way I can portray it for us is it is Jonah having a discussion with God saying, okay, God, you gave me your word, now you're going to hear my word. And I promise you, friends, in the structure of the language, every Hebrew ear that heard this and read it understood the tone behind the words of the prophet. And it's one of those moments, we've had them in our house at time to time when our kids were younger, growing up and challenging authority. Any moms and dads remember those moments? And one kid kind of mouths off and the other three take a step back. (laughs) And they're like going, get ready. The wrath of God, also known as the wrath of dad, is about to come down in fury. Jonah mouths off to God. And it is such disrespectful language. You're going to hear my word. And here's what he says. I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. This amazing part of the text. All of a sudden, Jonah comes out And he expresses his true self. He begins to unfold this problem in his heart. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Friends, here's what's going on. Jonah feared that the Lord just might be the Lord. And what that means is he feared that God might be God. Not himself. See, friends, it's fascinating to me. He goes back and he cites specifically. Jonah takes the very words of God. That passage that I just read is directly from Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Here, in essence, is what Jonah's doing. He takes the very word of God and says, Okay, God, you're going to hear now my word. And he takes God's word and he throws them back at God and in essence is saying, God, you're wrong. I know who you are. And he is exposing an incredible heart problem. Friends, think about it. This is what it comes down to. Listen, he was a Hebrew, Jonah was. He knew the holy cliches. He could quote the Psalms. He understood the scriptures. He could preach the word. But he couldn't love. This story comes down to this moment. 
Jonah couldn't love because he had yet to understand God's love for him. Growth indicator number 10 for you and for me. A life that is growing spiritually strives to love as God loves. When I was nine years old, my dad preached a sermon. And he read this story in it. There's a very old story, perhaps you've heard it, about a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained to the family that she had a disease exactly like the one her brother had recovered from earlier. Her condition was so far advanced that only a transfusion from her brother would save her. He had immunity built into his blood. And since the two children had the same rare blood type, the boy was the only donor possible. The doctor asked him, would you give blood to your sister? Johnny hesitated. His lower lip started to tremble a little. And then he smiled and said, yeah, for my sister, I'll give my blood. The day came for the transfusion and the two children were wheeled into the hospital room. Mary, his sister, was pale and thin. Johnny was robust and healthy. Neither spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny smiled. As the nurse inserted the needle into Johnny's arm, his smile faded. He watched the blood flow through the tube out of his body. When the ordeal was almost over, his voice, slightly shaking, broke the silence and said, Doctor, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize Johnny had misunderstood the process. He had been under the impression that if he gave his blood to his sister, that it would cost him his life. Yet he willingly agreed to do so. At the age of nine, when my dad told that story, I wept. Because I realized for the first time God's great love for me. And he preached that message that I'll never forget. As he quoted, listen, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for others. You see, friends, a life that is growing spiritually loves as God loves, because that life remembers God's love. For us. That's Jonah's problem. Well, the story continues back in the text, starting in at verse 4. Here's how the Lord replies. Jonah had asked the question, Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Verse 4. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Of course, the answer to that is what? The answer is no. Here's what verse 5 said. This story is spiraling out of control. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade and he waited to see what would happen to the city. 
Now remember, he had given the statement, what? 40 more days and Nineveh will be hapak. <laughs> remember that? And he meant it overturned, destroyed. But what really happens? It's not hapak destroyed. It's hapak what? Changed. You see, Jonah went outside. He is still so disturbed. His heart has so much hatred for these Ninevites. He had failed to recognize God's love for him that was poured out by grace and mercy. And he has such hatred for these individuals that he is waiting for God to destroy them. And what really happened is that their lives had now been changed. It's an amazing moment because look at what happens. In verse 6, it says this. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Did you hear the repetition of words here? Did you hear it? Yeah. God provided a vine. God provided a worm. God provided a wind. You know when we had seen this word one time before? God provided a fish. See, the amazing thing to me is, is that God is still trying to get the attention of his prophet. There's a growth indicator here for you and me, friends. Number 11, a life that is growing spiritually evaluates one's heart and removes that which hinders service or perspective. A life that is growing spiritually evaluates one's heart and removes that which hinders service or perspective. I wonder at times what God thinks when he looks at my life. You have wrestled with that yourself this week. There are times that the Lord, by his grace and mercy, coddles and moves and encourages and pushes. And I'm sure that those of us here in this room that have experienced the grace of God, there are times that God looks at us and thinks, I have given you every blessing under the sun. Shame on you. Years ago, I was introduced to a statement, a, a poem, by one of my heroes of the faith, Howard Hendricks. You guys remember years ago the statement that came out called Footprints in the Sand? Anybody remember that? It's a beautiful picture about the Lord carrying us in moments of our weakness. Well, there, I do believe there is another version of this that maybe you haven't heard. Listen to it. One night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen. The footprints of my precious Lord. But mine were not along the shore. But then some stranger prints appeared. And I asked the Lord, what have we here? Those prints are large and round and neat. But Lord, they are too big for feet. My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and made me wait. 
You disobeyed, you would not grow. The walk of faith, you would not know. So I got tired, I got fed up, and there I dropped you on your butt. Because in life there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb, when one must rise and take a stand or leave their butt prints in the sand. (laughs) You see, I really think in this text, as God looks at his servant who has had every blessing, who has received everything, Every promise. He had the law. He had the provision of God. And here in his arrogance, God says, Jonah, shame on you. You're more concerned about this little plant than you are about the people of Nineveh. You're you're out of focus, Jonah. And I wonder if God looks at us at times in our lives and says, you know, I've had enough. Just plop it down there. You child of grace who have not responded appropriately. Well, this thing comes to a rapid close. Look at what it says back in the text. Again, Jonah says, but God said to Jonah, or God says to him, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, Jonah says. I'm angry enough to die. He's so out of sorts. Verse 10 reads this. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Now, I'll be honest, we don't fully know what that phrase means. Here's what God's saying, though, it's very clearly. Jonah, you're more concerned about this vine, and there are a whole bunch of people down there in that city that do not know the God of Israel. And you have been more focused on your inconveniences, and the hatred has driven you, and you have lost God's perspective on life. Now, is that saying there's a whole bunch of kids down there that don't know their right hand from their left? Righty, tighty, loosey, lefty, remember all that kind of stuff? Is it saying there's a whole bunch of people down there that might as well be a bunch of little kids? Are there military phrases that are behind that possible? What God is clearly saying is that, Jonah, you have lost your perspective on what really matters. Do you see this? Don't miss it, friends. Jonah was concerned about the vine. Would you agree with me there? Yeah. He's concerned about the vine, which means he was really only concerned about himself. Friends, do you notice what is happening here when God says there are 120,000 people and Jonah is only concerned about himself? Do you see the inverted scale of value? Just think about it. Just in this passage, he is showing us that Jonah is more concerned about shelter and plants above animals and certainly humans. It's an inverted scale of what really matters. Friends, growth indicator number 12 is this. 
A life that is growing spiritually is concerned about people, not things. And that is a great challenge for those of us, every one of us, that live in the land of bounty. Years ago, I read a portion from a book by James Dobson entitled Coming Home. Timeless wisdom for families, and he told this story. When my daughter Danae was a teenager, she came home one day and said, Hey, Dad, there's a great new game out. I think you'll like it. It's called Monopoly. <laughs> Dobson said, I just smiled. We gathered the family together and set up the board. It didn't take the kids long to figure out that old dad had played this game before. I soon owned all the best properties, including the boardwalk, the park place. I even had the Baltic and the Mediterranean. My kids were squirming, and I was loving every minute of it. About midnight, I foreclosed on the last property, and I did a little victory dance. My family was not impressed. They went to bed and made me put the game away. And as I began putting all of my money back in the box, a very empty feeling came over me. Everything that I had accumulated was gone. The excitement over riches was just an illusion. And then it occurred to me, this isn't just the game of Monopoly that has caught my attention. It's the game of life. You sweat and you strain to get ahead, but then one day, after a little chest pain or a wrong change of lanes on the freeway, the game ends. It all goes back in the box, and you leave this world just as naked as the day you came into it. I once saw a bumper sticker that proclaimed, He who dies with the most toys wins. That is so wrong. It should say, he who dies with the most toys, dies anyway. A life that is growing spiritually is concerned about people, not things. Well, do you notice how this book ends? I purposefully saved this phrase to the end. The NIV has done a great job here, and it says this. Should I not be concerned about that great city? It ends in a question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Friends, don't miss this. The book closes just as it opened. With a word from the Lord. See, friends, here's a final growth indicator, and I believe it's the message of the book. A life that is growing spiritually is concerned about that great city. Because that's where people are that do not know the Lord. In conclusion... 
please note that there is not a response from the prophet. You see that? Here's why. It's because you are the prophet. And I am the prophet. And God wants to know how we're going to respond. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. We beg you, work within us. We're nothing without you. You've done everything for us. Help us to care about what you care about. You have shown us your love for us. May we revel in that and take that good news to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.